Welcome back to Runnymede Radio. I'm Christopher Kinsinger. Over the past few months on the podcast, we've been airing special encore presentations of the panels that were hosted at our National Law and Freedom Conference in Toronto earlier this year. Today's final episode in this series highlights our panel on the role of international law in Canadian courts, featuring Professor Dwight Newman, lawyer James Yap, graduate student Carrie Sun, and moderated by Professor Gerard Kennedy. It's my pleasure to introduce now the moderator for our next panel, which is on a perennial topic of of debate in Canadian law that seems to be recurring, and so it's a very fitting one that we discuss it here this weekend at our national conference. It's our pleasure to have this panel on the role of international law in Canadian courts being moderated by Professor Gerard Kennedy, a longtime friend of Runnymede, who is an assistant professor with the University of Manitoba's Faculty of Law. His research considers how different actors and institutions within or adjacent to the legal profession uphold the rule of law and facilitate access to justice. He principally does this through analyzing civil justice and procedure and administrative law and procedure, frequently with a comparative lens. He received his Juris Doctor at Queen's University, where he was the sole recipient of the Dean's Key in his graduating class. After that, he clerked at the Ontario Superior Court of Appeal and then received his Master of Laws at Harvard Law School and completed his doctoral studies at Osgoode Hall Law School in 2020. Please do me the honor of welcoming Professor Kennedy in our panel. Thank you, Carrie, for that introduction. Um, So I'm deeply honored to be with you here today, moderating this panel on the role of international law in Canadian courts. And to my left today, I'm pleased to be with James Yap, Carrie Sun, and Dwight Newman. Uh, James Yap is a Toronto-based lawyer specializing in international human rights law and related corporate liability. He represents plaintiffs in many human rights and social justice cases that raise and have raised novel uh, and or complex legal issues. Notably, he's been counsel for the plaintiffs in Nevson and Araya and Toussaint in Canada. He's advised many NGOs and has a scholarly presentation and publication record that would be the envy of many academics. Um, He's president of Canadian Lawyers for International Human Rights serves on the board of the Canadian Council for International Law. He has a JD from Osgoode Hall Law School and an LLM from Yale Law School and clerked for Mr. Justice Binney of the Supreme Court of Canada. I really am grateful for James being with us today because he unfortunately has just come from a funeral for his client, Ms. Nell Toussaint, who passed away this week. So I would like to offer us, James, our condolences on her passing and our gratitude for your being with us under such difficult circumstances. Thank you. Carrie Sun is a research associate at the Centre for Constitutional Law at the University of British Columbia, and he's a master's student at Merton College in Oxford. He received his JD from U of T, uh, and he was founding co-president of the Runnymede Society chapter there. Previously, he was a litigation associate at Sullivan and Cromwell in New York, and he clerked at the Alberta Court of Appeal and at the Supreme Court of Canada for Madam Justice Martin. He's written on private law, constitutional law, and foreign relations law. And lastly, but certainly not least, 
Uh, Professor Dwight Newman is Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Rights in Constitutional Law and International Law at the University of Saskatchewan. He was previously a law clerk to Chief Justice Le Maire and Justice LaBelle at the Supreme Court of Canada. He's been a visiting fellow at various other institutions in Canada and around the world, such as Oxford, Cambridge, Princeton, Montreal, University of Western Australia, Alberta, McGill. He's published 150 articles or book chapters and 15 books on topics in constitutional law, international law, and other areas. And recently, he published the Research Handbook on the International Law of Indigenous Rights in the internationally known Edward Elgar Research Handbook series. And he's co-edited a uh, volume, Minority Rights and Liberal Democratic Institutions with Routledge. Amongst his mother volunteer activities, he's judged many years at the international law rounds of the, the international rounds and the Canadian rounds of the Jessup International Law MOOC competition. Uh, and we'll be lucky to host him again as a coach, and maybe a judge, in Winnipeg next month. Um, very unfortunately, again, this panel's had some sadness. Sakanya Pillai, international human rights lawyer and faculty member at the University of Windsor, has been unable to join us today as her father has passed. So again, we offer our condolences to her and her family at this time. So, public international law is the international law that we'll be talking about on this panel. And it exists as the law that governs the relationship between states. It's different from private international law, which decides which law you apply in particular situations. And at the risk of grossly oversimplifying, international law, public international law, largely exists in two forms. Treaties, which are agreements reached between states that create international relations. They can be multilateral treaties or uh, bilateral treaties between states. They can be a variety of things. They can be extradition, they can be trade, they can be human rights. But there's also customary international law, which exists as binding between states in the face of sufficient state practice and opinio juris, the belief that the state is acting in a particular way because they're bound. That's important to put our later discussion in context. Two other things I want to briefly mention as terms that you might not always be aware of are monism and dualism. Monism is a theory of law that posits that there is really no distinction in a domestic legal system between international law and domestic law. That international law is automatically part of domestic law. Dualism would posit that there has to be some sort of separate step taken before the international law is enforceable in a domestic context. And that can sometimes differ whether we're talking about treaties or customs. So, with that vocabulary stated, um, the uses of public international law, whether it be treaty or customs, in Canadian courts has been a matter of some controversy in recent years. And James, you have been, as a lawyer, part of some of those controversies. So why don't I ask you a general question to start? How have you sought to use international law in the past? What kind of pushback have you received? And What's some of the response you have to that pushback? And maybe in doing so, you could comment on some of the normative concerns or political predispositions you have, you suspect, are underlying some of that pushback. Sure, okay. 
Great. Uh, thanks, Gerard, for that uh, wonderful and comprehensive introduction. Um, so in response to your question, I'll begin by way of background of describing um, uh, briefly how I came uh, to begin this journey of being involved in the application of international law in Canadian courts. And that was through a case um, which many of you uh, may have heard of and even read called Nevsan. Um, which was uh, decided at the Supreme Court in 2020. Uh, the Nevsan case, in which I was co-counsel for the plaintiffs, uh, involved a number of Eritrean nationals who claimed that they, were, had, uh, they had been forced to work at a mine, at a gold mine in Eritrea, for, um, that was owned by a Canadian mining company that's based in BC, now Eritrea, a small country you may or may not know about, but it's just to be brief, it's a very repressive country. Um, and a lot of these uh, human rights abuses were committed by the government itself. In short, there was no way of getting any recourse for uh, the use of forced labor in Eritrean courts. Um, the, the only recourse would have been in Canadian courts, otherwise the company would have gotten, gotten away with these alleged acts. So we filed a claim in British Columbia, um, and on behalf of a number of Eritrean nationals against the Canadian mining company uh, in Canadian courts, and we used a lot of the typical conventional common law torts, negligence, assault, battery, all these were pleaded. But at the same time, uh, we also did something novel, which was one of the key issues in the Nefson decision of the Supreme Court, which is that we also pleaded um, uh, that Nefson, the defendant, was also civilly liable for violations of complicity in violations of international law rules, violations of the customary international law prohibitions against forced labor, slaver, slavery, crimes against humanity, and torture, and this was based on a theory um, that uh, uh, I think is a decision in Hape in, two th uh, in a case called Hape in 2007, where uh, the Supreme Court said that customary international law is part of the common law, and so our thinking, and and by the way, it wasn't our idea. This had this had been done. A couple of times before in Canada, had been tried in Canada, but the, our case was the first time we went to the Supreme Court, so, so it's the, the, the case that got you know, famous for it. Um, but our thinking was that, I guess, if Canadian uh, customary international law is part of Canadian law, uh, it's part of the Canadian common law, and we have violations of customary international law, and therefore violations of, violations of uh, the common law, then... Um, well, don't we have an argument that that should lead, that should give rise to civil liability? And so we pleaded that. I think, you know, we wanted to, add, add, you know, we were talking about acts of, of, of slavery and torture and trying to, like, find ways to fit them into, into the rules of, of negligence and the requirements of things like assault and battery. And, and we decided, you know what, why don't we also just come up there and, and call it what it is, slavery, torture, forced labor, crimes against humanity, like, and, 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 and these, these are standards that exist, they're legal standards, they exist for a reason, let's try and use them. And so the defendant filed a motion to strike, and the motion to strike uh, for those non-lawyers in the room is just uh, a preliminary motion where the defendant argues, well, 
not only is this uh, legal theory wrong, uh, but even if you, even, or, or, or not only is the plaintiff wrong, but like, uh, um, even if you assume that all the facts are true, that the plaintiff has alleged is true, um, then, even then, there's just no reasonable cause of action. There's just no way this claim can succeed legally. So it, 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 it's really meant to be a very low threshold only to throw out the most obviously flawed claims, right? And so for this reason, so this was argued at the BBC Supreme Court and then the BC Court of Appeal, um, a total of four judges, and again, in part because honestly of, of this really low threshold, there wasn't that much controversy, I feel, about this aspect of the decision. I mean, the, the judges took a look, they said, okay, I mean, it's certainly novel, but it sounds reasonable, it makes some sense, it's not the kind of argument that you would throw out on a motion to strike, we'll let it through, and then you can argue at trial. Um, then when we got to the Supreme Court, something that I found surprising happened, which is that at this point became the key point of controversy in the decision. Uh, and it was, so we ended up winning uh, uh, by a 5-4 majority on that point, and, and the case was allowed to go through the trial and eventually settled before trial. Um, but what happened at the Supreme Court is we won by a 5-4 majority, and, and four judges said, no, this, 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 um, this argument does not even meet the th low threshold that I just described to you uh, and should be thrown out on that basis. And what was more intriguing to me was that the four judges who um, rejected this argument were the four judges which you could say are sort of the conservative wing of the Supreme, of the, uh, of the Supreme Court at the time. Uh, and this I found a bit surprising, I have to say, because um, I can say I did not see what I was doing as inherently political. Um, I thought, okay, you know, this is, um, you know, this is about slavery. I, th I, I, I think this is, we can all agree on slavery. I mean, on the right, I like, if, if you're a free market conservative, I figured, what's more repulsive than, than stealing the fruit of someone's labor? Um, but we got to the court, and there was a big conservative kind of stand against uh, this argument. So that really surprised me, and I really got to thinking, what can it be, what, what can it, I mean, and, and, and I thought, well, it, it, it's, it's uh, you know, it, it's not that, I mean, it, it, you, you, maybe it could be that, you know, um, uh, conservatives see human rights as fundamentally anti-conservative, but I don't think that's the case, um, because I think human rights in a lot of ways are very inherently conservative. Um, um, I, I feel like whatever um, a conservative's opinion on a particular case, in general, conservatives should be celebrating every time individual rights are upheld in the, in the face of, of the, the common good of society or, or what's seen by the government as the common good of society. So I don't think it's an anti-human rights thing. Um, then I thought, okay, well, maybe it's kind of like a, a, a Trumpian uh, sort of like anti-globalist thing where there's an opposition to this idea of international rules generally and this idea of, of being bound by like a set of common rules. Um, I don't think, I don't know if that's the case either because I, I don't, I, I just don't think that's the case. I don't think that's, that, that's um, shall we say, as dominant um, 
an element of conservatism in Canada. Like we're, we're, we're not a country that can just go, you know, go out in the world and say, fuck everyone else, we'll just do what we want, right? It's, it's just not part of our, um, our, our fabric or, or our, honestly, our, our, our pragmatic kind of circumstance. So, so this is, I think, animates my interest in being here today and, and sort of like exploring and, and, and having that discussion about like, well, what it is, what's the objection then? What is the fundamental objection, um, 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 particularly from the right, um, on, on the use of, of international law and Canadian courts? Thank you, James, for that very uh, comprehensive introduction. And I actually think it dovetails quite nicely into what I want to ask Kerry. Because I gather, Kerry, you have been a skeptic but not an opponent of the uses of international law in Canadian courts, but you have also objected to some extent to the lack of methodological rigor, which is anyone who knows you would not be surprised to learn that you value methodological rigor, uh, and then how this might vary in light of what precisely type of international law we're talking about, and in the type of case, such as a statutory interpretation, is it constitutional interpretation, or such as in Nevson, um, its role in imposing civil liability on private actors. So I'm curious what you think in this regard, and feel free to comment on anything James has said as well. Okay. Uh, thanks, Gerard. Uh, always good to be back at the Running Mean Society conference, and uh, this time talking to you about uh, the phoenix rising from the ashes that is modern international law, in the words of Justice Abella. Uh, so I think you're right that the challenges uh, differ uh, in terms of methodological rigor as between different contexts in which international law is used. So there, there's three that you know, I'll, I'll briefly mention. One is in the context of statutory interpretation. There's actually a relatively well-established framework for how courts uh, think about the place of international law. As a recent judgment from the Supreme Court uh, in the Entertainment Software Association case dealing with the with the Copyright Act um, affirms, so principles of international law are understood to form part of the backdrop for intentional lawmaking acts by the legislature, which is why there's a general presumption that the legislature doesn't intend to put Canada in breach of principles of international law absent a clear legislative intent. And so international law in that context comes under um, the category of context when you're interpreting a statute with the understanding, of course, that the guiding principle is uh, legislative intent. And so there's not that much controversy in terms of what is the role of uh, international and foreign legal materials in the context of interpreting a particular statute. Uh, so far, so good. Moving to constitutional interpretation, I'll just mention very briefly, and I mean, we can discuss this uh, further, but the role of international law in that context has obviously been much more contested. Part of this, I think, is due to differing conceptions at root of constitutionalism, which feed into divergent views about what the place of international and foreign legal materials is in constitutional interpretation. So, for example, on the one hand, uh, you might think that uh, uh, the Constitution constitutional interpretation is about understanding the particular settlement that was made through the particular constitutional provisions that were adopted at a particular time. And so if you take that view, uh, you might think that there are, there's a division that has to be made between, say, international law that was prevalent at the time of adoption, at the time of enactment of a particular constitutional provision, versus the evolving understandings of things like 
international human rights instruments that have occurred since uh, the enactment of the Constitution. On the other hand, uh, you might think that, um, as with jurists like Justice Abella, that Canada's constitution participates in some kind of ongoing global judicial dialogue because our charter, she says, comes from the same chrysalis of outrage as other um, rights documents in other parts of the world, and that's why we ought to look at those foreign legal materials, comparative law, in ascertaining what our constitution ought to mean. So at root, I think there's a differing conception of constitutionalism at play here. But what I'd like to get to, most of all, is the Nefson case. And, um, and as James said, it is, uh, it is an unprecedented decision. It sits at, and I'm particularly interested in it because it sits at the confluence of two of my uh, academic interests, private law and foreign relations law, which is the law of uh, each domestic legal order that governs how that legal order interacts with the external international legal order. So foreign relations law is a term that you typically hear in the United States where they have a very well-developed body of foreign relations law governing how domestic law and international law interact. It's not a term that's typically heard in, in Commonwealth countries, though there's been a recent resurgence of interest um, out of this understanding that um, there are in fact all these different doctrines in our law coming from private law coming from conflict of laws, coming from constitutional principles that deal with how norms of international law are to be received in our domestic legal system. And I would say that I find the uh, Nefsan decision particularly troubling because I believe it has single-handedly introduced a number of highly flawed and novel propositions uh, into Canadian law. And so these can generally be broken down into three categories. So as James said, uh, the Nevsan decision held for the very first time that when a private entity such as a corporation breaches, is, is deemed to breach a rule of customary international law, such as the prohibition on, say, forced labor, that corporation may come under civil liability in some sort of tort law under domestic law, so domestic civil liability for breaches of customary international law. No other court uh, in the world, to my knowledge, has come to this conclusion. In the United States, you have a number of uh, uh, decisions based on the alien tort statute. That's a statutory framework that's been enacted to impose civil liability on private entities and corporations for breaches of customary international law. In uh, here, in Nevsun, this, what the Supreme Court of Canada did was it reasoned that the doctrine of adoption, which says that uh, the, uh, the, the common law of Canada includes norms of customary international law, leads to the conclusion that we should impose civil liability on corporations uh, for breaches of, of customary international law. So the doctrine of adoption is, uh, is to be sure, uh, very well established. You find it uh, in uh, referenced in uh, sources going back to Blackstone and to Lord Mansfield from the old English common law. And the problem with the Nefson decision, however, is threefold. First of all, it adopted a questionable interpretation of the relevant international norms. 
So I will read uh, from a, uh, a, a section of the dissent, and they're, here they're quoting the leading textbook on international law, stating that corporate liability for human rights violations was not yet a norm, a recognized norm of international law. And so, uh, Justices Brown and Rowe quote at paragraph 190 of their reasons, quote, at present, no international processes exist that require private persons or businesses to protect human rights, nor is corporate liability for human rights violations yet recognized under customary international law. That is a direct quotation from Sir James Crawford's Brownlee's Principles of Public International Law, uh, 2019. So only one year before the Nefson decision, the leading qualified publicist of international law was stating that corporate liability for human rights violations had not yet been recognized under customary international law. So before we even get to the interaction between domestic and international law in Nevsun, there's a big question mark about whether or not the majority was correct in holding that customary international law did have these norms imposing corporate liability. The second problem that I'll just mention with Nevsun is it uh, has the risk of reinforcing a number of pernicious myths about the doctrine of adoption. And in the majority judgment, Justice Abella refers to the doctrine of adoption almost as if it's a, a kind of a legal magic. It, she says it directly and automatically incorporates norms of customary international law into Canadian law. Therefore, there must be uh, domestic civil liability for breaches of these norms. Well, there's a number of problems with this. One, it doesn't necessarily follow from a breach of customary international law that the remedy for that has to be a civil remedy in the form of a tort-like action. The second problem is the doctrine of adoption is not frictionless. It doesn't operate as a magic incantation to grant to the claimant whatever wishes it wants, you still have to, because it's a doctrine of the common law, you still have to be bound by things like fundamental constitutional principles, fundamental principles governing the judicial development of the common law. And under the common law, judges do not in fact have the power to conjure torts out of nothing. Uh, there's a well-known principle from the Salatoro case that deals with the fact that courts have to act incrementally when developing the common law. And you could also understand that as saying that in order for judicial development of the common law to be properly judicial, they have to abide by the conceptual vocabulary, the structures of tort law. Yeah, uh, and, and instead, in this case, uh, the majority concluded that um, you have these four new nominate torts of forced labor, slavery, cruel and human uh, degrading treatment, and crimes against humanity, uh, simply from the fact that they've been breached. So um, I'll, just, I'll just leave it at that, but uh, I think that there are, are, are serious flaws with uh, the Nefson decision, um, and, and, and happy to discuss that further. Thank you, Kerry. I certainly gave us a lot to talk about. I suspect James may have something to say about that, but I want to go to Dwight first. Um, because I mentioned at the outset, and this kind of builds on what Kerry said, that international law exists in different forms, treaties, customs, General Assembly resolutions falling into a gray zone as whether they're law at all. Do you think it matters what type of legal instrument you're actually trying to use in Canadian courts? And should it, and why? 
Well, uh, thank you for the question. Thank you for having me on the panel. Uh, I, I guess if I took the question as, uh, does it matter that we draw distinctions between types of law that are binding and not binding and uh, law that's real law and law that's imaginary law, it might not surprise you if I said, yes, it does actually matter to draw those kinds of distinctions uh, and that that's part of the rule of law that we draw those distinctions. And uh, I'm not being flippant here, uh, not, uh, not saying that international law is imaginary, but some interpretations of parts of it can be um, if one isn't careful. And there's a real need for rigor. And, uh, distinguishing between these different types of international law uh, is part of that rigor. Um, so I'll, I'll just highlight that nine months after the Nevson decision, there was another decision from the Supreme Court of Canada um, under the, the very easy to remember name of Attorney General of Quebec and 91470732 Quebec Inc. Um, and you need to take your notes very carefully uh, because otherwise you read your notes and uh, you go and dial it and uh, it leads to all end of confusion. But in any case, um, in the Quebec Inc. case, which I'll call it for simplicity, um, the majority, uh, which has a switch involved, um, nine months after the Nevson decision, Chief Justice Wagner moves uh, to this group of four judges uh, that were in the minority in Nevson. So there are now five judges who say that it's really important to draw principled distinctions between different types of law, between what is binding and what's not, and they sketch out various rules drawing upon that, uh, that idea, um, trying to create a disciplined framework um, for what's done with, uh, with international law in the Canadian courts. And I think that's in large part a good thing. Um, we could talk about some details of that and uh, um, where there might be room to adjust that framework, but I think having a disciplined framework um, is a good thing that actually allows us to take international law seriously, but as law um, rather than as a, a mush, in a sense. Um, and uh, in the other alternative set out in the case is in now the minority opinion of Justice Abella in uh, Quebec Inc. And she's quite critical of this majority opinion and says that it's departing from the panoramic search for global wisdom, uh, which strikes me as uh, not exactly meeting um, the standard that we should look for if we're looking for law. Uh, I mean, there's something to be said for looking for wisdom wherever we may find it. Uh, but at the end of the day, we need to look carefully at what parts of wisdom are part of the law and which parts might be persuasive about um, different ideas, but distinguishing uh, between these sources is important. And so treaties uh, that Canada has entered into that become internationally binding on Canada because it has ratified them, um, they are certainly important sources of law, um, subject to interpretive questions about what treaty provisions might mean. Um, and so they lead to this presumption of conformity of uh, Canadian, um, uh, Canadian law with those treaties in various contexts, and uh, Kerry's already alluded to that dimension. Um, customary international law, I mean, there's a, a little bit of a complex picture here. I mean, it's actually long-standing that in principle, customary international law is part of the common law. Um, even before HAPE, I think one could have said that in some respects. 
Um, but there's a, a challenging dimension here because it is important to be rigorous about what is customary international law and what's not. And uh, our institutions are not well equipped to deal with that, I'll, I'll say. Um, I, I've actually said to my students for a long time that customary international law is part of the common law and if they want to go and make a common law argument consisting of customary international law in some random rural courtroom, I will definitely come and I won't be allowed to bring popcorn but I'll uh, have imaginary popcorn um, and see how this plays out. And I mean, I do commend those who've gone and put the arguments. I mean, I respect a lot the work that James Yap is doing. Um, uh, and he's been able to make those arguments, but I would say our institutions are not well set up for it. Mo many judges in the country have no training whatsoever in international law. Um, many lawyers have no training whatsoever in international law. And if we take seriously the developments here, um, international law should actually be a mandatory course. It is at a few law schools, but it probably needs to become a mandatory course so that people can engage in discussions about the contents of the common law, part of which is shaped by customary international law, but in rigorous ways rather than non-rigorous ways. Uh, I'll, I'll just try to wrap up quickly here, but I'll say other international legal materials we need to be careful with. And it's not to say that they aren't properly part of Canadian law in some instances, or might not shape Canadian law in some instances, rather. Um, here I'd say, particularly, United Nations declarations, for example, United, uh, declarations of the UN General Assembly in particular, we need to be very careful not to turn something that's not an international legislative body into an international legislative body for purposes of Canadian law, because that's a strange position that actually disrespects international law and what it amounts to if we start treating things that are not international legislation as if they were international legislation. Um, and uh, there have been judgments that have drawn attention to the importance of rigor with international law. Um, there's some interesting decisions around um, intervention applications uh, issued by Justice Stratus at the Federal Court of Appeal, for example. But I, I just say on declarations, the United Nations General Assembly issues a lot of resolutions. They don't all become international law in sort of strong ways. Uh, these bodies of what's sometimes called soft law um, have a range of degrees of significance. But some are significant, and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the philosophical discussions that led up to it can actually be informative um, and helpful and persuasive about aspects of how we interpret rights that haven't received interpretation. Um, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, I actually think, does have a significance as um, uh, an international normative framework that may help to interpret parts of Canadian law, but we shouldn't regard it as legislation in some quick way, and we shouldn't fail at the task of engaging in proper interpretation of uh, uh, provisions that are often misdescribed, quite frankly. And so I'll just leave it at that, but say we do need to distinguish between these different sources. Um, the Quebec Inc. decision sets us on that path within the law, and I think that's a good thing. Wow, uh, a lot to think about. And I got to say that in law nerd circles, Attorney General of Quebec and 91470723 Quebec Inc., which I prefer to call Quebec Inc. as well, did create quite the um, 
the stir about the use of international law in Canadian courts, in particular in constitutional interpretation. And James, I think perhaps somewhat counterintuitively, this to many people in this room, you've expressed some sympathy for the majority's goal in trying to bring more methodological rigor in the use of international law in Canadian courts, and that the gap, in your view, between the majority and the dissent isn't quite as large as it may appear. I'm curious if I'm fairly expressing your views in this regard, and could you unpack that? And by all means, I'm curious about your thoughts on what Carrie and Dwight have said. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Gerard. Um, first of all, um, uh, let me just say, Dwight, if you haven't seen me argue about customary international law in front of some of these Canadian judges, you, you've missed out on some great popcorn watching. <laughs> um, um, so, yeah, the Quebec 9000 case. Um, so, let me just say, I'm all for rigor. I'm all for everything um, uh, you said. Um, I'm all for... Um, I, I agree entirely with a lot of what is said in, in, in the Quebec 9000 decision. I, I don't see a contradiction between a view of the role of international law in Canadian courts that is novel, expansive even, I'll admit, um, and rigor. Um, by way of background, I have a um, computer science background in my undergrad. Um, and there, I mean, computers are unforgiving machines. Everyone's been through the situation where they type www.goggle.ca, and the computer's like, I have no idea or no clue what you're talking about, right? Um, in this world, you have to be very extremely rigorous. And if you're not, you're punished by having to sit in front of your computer for hours on end, figuring out what that one small flaw is in those thousands of lines of code. So, so this, I'm all for rigor. Um, and, 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 but the, the, the flip side of rigor, though, is that if you, the flip side of rigor is also that if you have, um, a series of rules that, and you apply them logically, and they lead to a result that is novel, startling, counterintuitive, even disturbing, then if you are faithful to rigor, then that has, that has to be the result, even if it's novel, counterintuitive, etc. Um, so for instance, um, think about Albert Einstein. Right um, now, his 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 genius wasn't that he was smart, uh, which he was. He was obviously really smart, but his true brilliance, right, was in his ability to disregard his intuition, start with what he knew about the laws of physics, see the the natural conclusions they led to, and then come up with some pretty wild stuff. Things like oh, different objects travel in time at different rates and say, well, this must be the truth. And you know, at first glance, you know, people at the time would have, would have thought, oh, well, that's crazy, that can't be true. But then you look into it, and it's rigorous, and it's right. right? So um, to respond to what Carrie said about incrementalism, for example, um, I get that. But again, if you have a set of established common law rules, and, and we can argue about what they are, but, if you, but, but the basic principle is that if you have a, an established set of, uh, uh, of, of common law rules and you apply them, 
and they lead to a result that is novel, that doesn't mean it's not incremental. That doesn't mean it's a sea change in the common law. That just means you've applied the law in a way that, that, that leads to a result that you wouldn't have thought was the result, but that has to be the result. Now, now, now I know law doesn't quite, quite work like an algorithm either. If anything, it's a little bit less rigorous in that, set, in that, in that judges kind of wiggle out of it, this rigor sometimes. Uh, and this is something I feel, I feel that the dissent did in Nevson, is they kind of wiggled out. Uh, the, the, I think Justice Brown in the hearing, uh, who wrote the, uh, one of the dissenting opinions, he was onto this. He said, he asked um, opposing counsel, well, what do we do? We have these customary international law rules, and we have these statements from the Supreme Court establish, establishing that customary international law is part of the common law. What can we do with that? And he, he found, he, he ended up finding ways to wiggle out of it a little bit again. But that, that's fine. That's how law works, right? Um, but if we're going to talk about rigor, um, I'm, so I'm all for rigor, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't have results that are sort of novel or counterintuitive. And if you find those results as an application of rigor, then you have to um, accept them as the correct outcome. Thank you very much, James. Um, so Carrie, on this note of methodological rigor, do you think Quebec Inc. is a move in the right direction? Or do you still think there are areas where clarity and guidance is lacking? Uh, yeah, thanks, Gerard. Um, so on the 9147 case, um, in general, I agree with, with the chief instinct, which I think is animating the majority judgment, which is that the invocation of international law in this context has, has been beset with a certain degree of laxity. And, and Dwight has canvassed very well the, the ways in which the, the, the judgment um, seeks, seeks to set out to rectify um, that and introduce a more principled framework in constitutional interpretation. So, so I agree with all of that. I do have a couple of thoughts that sort of range from qualms to quibbles about 9147. The main one is that um, Justices Brown and Roe refer to the role of international and foreign laws having a, a limited role of providing support or confirmation for the result reached by way of purposive interpretation. So to answer your question, I think that that's one area that deserves some clarification because it's a bit unclear what, what uh, provide support or confirmation means. If you've already arrived at the conclusion of your interpretive exercise, then what's the point of finding further support or confirmation? So, so is it like, is international and comparative law like a sort of a stamp of approval that you put after you've reached the conclusion on what the constitutional provision means? So arguably this, this conflicts a little bit with what they say elsewhere in their judgment, which is that um, sources of international law may be relevant or persuasive interpretive tools. So there's a tension between saying that those sources are, are persuasive on the one hand, which suggests that they play a role in the interpretive exercise uh, itself, and saying that they come into the picture after you already reach an interpretive conclusion. And, and maybe one way to understand this reference to providing support or confirmation is that Justices Brown and Roe are simply saying that international or foreign law aren't free-floating norms 
that should inspire a court to try and actively align a constitutional provision with what's happening elsewhere uh, in the world, and it has to be tethered to the ordinary interpretive process. I think if that's the, if that's the direction they're going in, it, it makes a good deal of sense. Um, to, to respond to James's point about um, the, the apparent contradiction between novel claims and rigor, I, I certainly agree that, that we need to accept the logical conclusions of legal reasoning. One of, the, one of the insights of foreign relations law, though, is that the interaction between domestic and uh, international law is not frictionless. Every single domestic legal system has different ways in which it deals with and tries to incorporate the norms of international law and give those effect in the legal system. But, you, you, but it, it's one thing to, to say that the doctrine of adoption means that uh, customary international law is part of the law of Canada. It's another thing to say that that compels a certain conclusion given the constitutional structure, the principles governing the judicial development of private law go. So, so that's something that has to be constrained within the ordinary conceptual vocabulary of uh, things like tort law. So in tort law, for example, one of, the, uh, one of the features of tort law that differs from criminal law is that in tort law, typically you don't care about what the labeling of the underlying wrong is. In criminal law, you care a lot about whether you've been, uh, whether a crime is labeled with assault versus battery versus another type of label that you might put on it, partly because you need to give notice and partly because of the stigma that attaches to being accused or being convicted of a particular criminal offense versus another criminal offense. But tort law and private law generally knows no doctrine of fair labeling. And why is this relevant to Nefson? Well, one of the principles that constrains uh, the creation of new causes of action uh, in private law is that where there is an existing remedy, an existing cause of action, an existing tort that would cover the facts, the wrongs that are being alleged by a particular party, there is no need for further judicial development of the common law to create a new nominate tort, say, of forced uh, slavery. I mean, you could get the same result from a combination of battery, forced imprisonment, or unlawful confinement, rather, and, and get the same remedy, which is uh, monetary or punitive uh, damages. And so, one of the, so it's not as if the doctrine of adoption, simply by virtue of its existence, operates in such a way that we can disregard these fundamental principles that are inherent uh, in the common law, which have been, which, which are long-standing principles, and, and that uh, international law needs to be taken as a piece that, that has to be fit within the existing conceptual structures and legal frameworks that we have in, in the domestic legal order. Hey, thank you very much. Um, Dwight, maybe last question before we open up for Q&A. We've talked a little bit about last night and again this morning um, about comparing and contrasting the American and Canadian legal regimes and the use of international law to interpret domestic law is also hotly contested in the US and so I'm curious if you could compare and contrast the two systems approach and maybe indicate what you think are the advantages and disadvantages to both. Okay, I'd be happy to answer that, but I mean, just briefly before, I, 
I do want to raise an issue with the moderating here that you're not pushing us to enough fighting and disagreements. <laughs> um, because I also want to echo that I agree with uh, James's comments of a moment ago that uh, suggested that rigor could lead to novel results. Um, and I'll point to someone else that agrees with that too, which is that there's a great line about the idea that as a judge, if you never reach a result, that you would uh, uh, do differently as a politician, basically, that you're probably just imposing your personal preferences rather than applying the law. And that's from, of course, Justice Antonin Scalia. I've paraphrased it a bit, but uh, I mean, there can be a surprising amount of agreement here across um, uh, different contexts. And uh, in respect of the United States, I'll just say um, that the, uh, Justice Scalia has been part of some very heated discussions about comparative law, but focusing just on international law specifically, um, uh, the US is a very different place than a lot of people see it described as, because it's sometimes described as if it's some kind of rogue state with respect to international law, and uh, the United States engages a lot with international law. Um, it's a country that many decades prior to Nevison uh, was actually pretty actively involved in applying customary international law in the context of various human rights disputes um, because of the 1789 Alien Tort Claims Act as interpreted in the Second Circuit uh, decision of Phil Artiga in 1980. And so you actually had a period of several decades where there was some pretty active um, uh, use of customary international law and one dimension that sort of emerged out of the rich discussions on this was that while there is a, a purely legal dimension to that, it does also implicate foreign relations dimensions for the state. And so the US Supreme Court uh, reined that in a bit in the, the Sosa decision where they talked about more vigilant doorkeeping on the kinds of claims under the Alien Tort Claims Act. And, um, may have gone even a bit further than the need to in the Kiobel decision much more recently um, where they applied a presumption against extraterritorial application of statutes to really shut down a lot of alien tort claims uh, litigation. Um, but I'll, I'll just say that uh, that's an example where the United States has had a complex um, and rich debate over a number of decades that, uh, that we could draw a lot of things from in, uh, in good discussions in Canada and pick up on different ideas that came from the, the debates there. Um, the United States is of course different on treaties in terms of having a, uh, a formal dimension of the ratification process proceeding not just through the executive side but through the legislative side as well uh, through uh, significant Senate approval and that's part of what's led the United States to fail to ratify a number of international treaties is getting that sufficient support in the Senate. But that points actually towards a factor that's really important to think about in terms of uh, if the executive alone can go and negotiate international treaties and thereby override um, decisions that might have otherwise been legislative or override, like at least at a pressure level, decisions that otherwise would have been uh, decisions to be made at another uh, level of government within a federal state. Um, the United States is alive to some of these questions in terms of its constitutional design around that feature, for example, in a way that um, 
Canada maybe could grapple with a bit more. Um, I'll, I'll just say around treaties, uh, the US is also a complex place insofar as uh, uh, they've thought about various different concepts around treaties that might be self-executing versus treaties that are non-self-executing and had to think about um, whether there are treaties that based upon the, uh, the ratification of it start to have effect without needing further legislation, whereas others that, that would. Um, uh, but again, they're, they're, they've thought through a lot of different issues around this, and you can agree or disagree with particular results on it, but it's the, the process of thought that they've gone through and the debate that they've gone through that I think can be very informative. And the 2008 Medellin and Texas decision is a, an example where, um, again, they came to this view that um, although there'd been ratification of international human rights treaties, they didn't want to assume that those immediately overrode democratic legislative decisions or decisions that might be made at the state level. These kinds of concerns run through various different decisions. And in saying that, I, I don't think the US judges saying that are trying to disrespect human rights or are trying to, well, they're, they're trying to respect different aspects of rights. And the right of democratic self-government is a significant right too. And I think just the US gives an example of a country that's actually engaged with that um, in some rich ways. And there's, there's more to be learned from the US experience than we sometimes give it credit for. Um, uh, but it's a complex place and the simple comparison isn't easy to make. So that would be my comment there. Thanks for listening. Runnymede Radio is a program of the Runnymede Society a nonpartisan organization of Canadian law students, lawyers, and legal scholars committed to the principles of constitutionalism, fundamental freedoms, and the rule of law. Our podcast is edited by Thomas Falcone and produced by me, Christopher Kinsinger. Our podcast sponsor is LexisNexis Canada. Follow us on social media and stay tuned for updates on the exciting events that our student chapters have planned for the upcoming school year. So long for now.